talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Hello, and welcome to season four of The Worst Wing. I'm Stu. And I am Dave. Welcome. And we are bringing you back to the West Wing season four um, for, you know, our typical analysis. I'm assuming that you have been listening to this podcast the whole time, so it bears no real repeating of what we do here. Um, I just wanted to, before we kick this off, I wanted to preface it by saying that this episode, it was two episodes. It's a two-parter. Yes. Um, to launch season four. There was a brief thing that I saw in some of the reviews that apparently Sorkin was not pleased with how basically like the last half or so of season three um, turned out. I don't know if it was because of critical reception, not as good or like he personally was just, I don't know, not coked up enough or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But he apparently like made a thing where he's just like season four, I'm bringing the heat again, baby. Blah, blah. Yeah. And, he this was again this was a two-parter and dave you noticed that it was actually two episodes that were broadcast in on the same day yeah so this this uh (laughs) explains a good amount of the the amount of pull the show has uh at this point in time where they basically told the network uh we're actually gonna do two episodes for our first episode and you're gonna air them back to back give us two time slots and uh the network was like yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't. I can't even imagine nowadays. Be yeah. like, you, you what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's an incredible amount of pull. Again, this is explains why they can get so many big name guest stars. Um, as we'll see, Lily Tomlin comes back in this episode, uh, which is always always entertaining. But this episode, uh, these episodes are entitled 20 Hours in America, Parts One and Two." Uh, and the titular 20 hours are spent by Josh, Donna, and Toby, as the uh, kickoff point to this plot is that they are left behind by the presidential motorcade when they're at a speech event somewhere in Indiana, and they have to spend the rest of the two episodes getting back, first trying to get back to the motorcade, and then once they realize that is futile, uh, just trying to get back to Washington, D.C. itself. Yeah, and so... The very broad, you know, 85-minute arc of this includes those three characters going, going Pretty through. Pretty much. Just a really a really lovely set of travails of dealing with every town, USA. Yes. Which is, um, just... <laughs> which is really nice because, A, we're outside of D.C. for one of the rare few times the show actually does this. Uh, they're clearly shooting on location somewhere midwesternly. I don't know if it's specifically Indiana. Uh, like they claim in the episode, but they're you know we're out of we're out of DC. We're interacting with no quote unquote normal folks, and uh, it's a nice way to see the contrast between Josh and Toby's normal day to day of dealing with other West Wing types of other you know DC neolibs professional versus, political operatives right too. versus dealing with actual real people who are out in the world having lived experiences struggling with money you know all these things that are outside the DC bubble that they fucking live in yeah so actually like the very first person we see who's not in the regular cast is Amy Adams yay holy shit <laughs> like 
now probably one of the this highest is, paid actresses in Hollywood. Right, and this is before she was in, like, anything. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure this is the first time she's been in anything notable. I'm sure she had done some minor stuff before this, but this was probably a big step up for her, and probably, like, I don't want to say launched her career, but definitely was like, oh, hey, I've been on a network TV show now, so now I'm gonna do a movie, and, and then, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> Well, and I think for her specifically, Amy Adams is an actress that I only became aware of when she and, frankly, I, because I think we're close to the same age, she was like 30-something when she started getting these big, big roles, which is somewhat unusual, I think, and frankly, in a... Especially for women. That's what I was going to say, like, Mm -hmm. in the oeuvre of Hollywood, like, if you're not a hot starlet at 23... Right, your time's gone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like, you you aren't going to be entering the the big leagues at 31. Not generally, yeah. So, so. I mean, I think she was 28 when this was filmed, so actually maybe she's a little bit older than I am, but anyway... so yeah, I mean it's really she's, it's really interesting. Yeah, so she's out there and she's trying to talk to Josh about farming issues because she works on a uh, soybean farm out in Indiana, and she keeps trying to you know she's bringing up you know that they barely make ends meet and that she has a fucking second job for mm-hmm. uh, for health insurance benefits and stuff like that. And uh, Josh and Toby, well, Josh in particular is just like, ha farmer's daughter, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just being like a total schizo about it. And then tries to bring that up to this guy that they're riding with after they miss the motorcade. <laughs> this big guy. And he's like, hey, hey, yeah, farmer's daughter, am I right? Look at that Amy girl. He's, just, he's like, yeah, that's my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so... The, the initial sort of, like, we mentioned this sort of the, like, literally ivory tower elitism that the professional political operatives sort of embody out here. And it's written in a way, the whole, every interaction that they have in Indiana or wherever is sort of dripping with contempt on the part <laughs> of Sorkin's writing. Like, you get these transitions that are just... You know, it's fucking banjo, boonie, hillbilly music. Yeah, like... But... Looks like sort them of, Josh and Toby boys are in trouble again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like... But then, like, I guess to his credit, the entire time is just Josh and Toby getting fucking dunked on... Yes. ...by regular people. Like Yes. Yeah, and like, and all these people lay out their material needs and, and the material reasons that they don't give a fuck about... Bartlett in particular, but electoral politics in general, for the most part. And it's it's a great contrast, like I said, to see the sort of DC bubble meet the real world between these three. And spoil, spoiling a little bit, but at the end of it, Donna goes on this great rant, basically calling them the fuck out for like, you didn't listen at all to these farmers who were trying to tell you their actual problems, and you kept trying to just turn it into, well, Richie's going to win Indiana anyway, so why am I even listening to you? <laughs> Which, Jesus Christ, like, when when I was watching this and them talking about like the, the state being an electoral loss for the presidency anyway, it's it was like sort of this analog to the South Carolina conversation in the presidential primary this time around, because it's like the entire stakes of the DNC in 2020 is built around this presumption that Joe Biden just hit it out of the park with black voters in South Carolina. And it's like, no democratic candidate will ever win South Carolina. (laughs) Right. Not in in the the generals. Like, so, so what, 
what is what's the what's the deal here with the yeah. fire? <laughs> so that which actually that brings me to a question that I had once they pointed out the correct fact that obviously Richie's gonna win Indiana in the West mm-hmm. Wing universe. So why are they fucking campaigning there? Why <laughs> what's Bartlett doing a speech there for anyway? Yeah, it's a very like that. That's my question. Like, like if and... Toby's gonna be bitching about like, well, Richie's just gonna win Indiana anyway. It's like, well, okay, well then why are you here? Go spend. So... Go to a state that's a swing state, a battleground state. I can see some remnants of, and particularly on the writer's side of it, I can see some remnants of the 50-state strategy that Howard Dean was going to be pushing in another... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Actually, probably by the end of this season had started pushing for the 2004 candidacy. But it's very... It's just... It's completely incongruous because they spend all this time... Like, Toby is there walking and listening to the president speak in the background and being like, oh, God, he stepped on that line. It's like... right. This micro-focused management targeted like right. freakouts like if about we, this oh, stuff. He's got to nail the Indiana speech, or the whole campaign's busted. You know, like and, when and it yet, doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, and yet they're all explicitly saying out loud that it doesn't fucking matter. Mm-hmm. So what the, it is what the fuck, guys? Fig- yeah. figure your shit out. I and think I it's think, just. I think it's partly that Toby is, like, just professionally obsessed with, like, making Mm -hmm. sure every single speech is, like, absolutely perfect or whatever. And, like, this is... This is Sorkin sort of jerking himself off, which he will do with abandon uh, (laughs) later in part two. But we'll get to that when we get to that. But I think this is Sorkin sort of jerking himself off with like, oh, writers just care so much. you got to get every word right. Because this is something he was very famous for doing with his actors, where he kept them to every single word that was in the script. Don't improv. Don't go off page. Mm. If it says seven no's, you say the word no seven times, not eight, not six. You know, like hmm. Sorkin was a very exacting uh, sort of writer uh, when it came to his actors reading the script. So I feel like there's a little bit of projection going on here where Toby's like, oh, the president didn't deliver my line the way I meant it. Yeah, it just and it's it is, again, very focused on speechifying the yeah. the big the big hits in this episode take the form of speeches like. Yes. There is, you know, we'll talk about the kind of the the Kumar versus domestic terrorism thing in the next segment. But like most of this stuff revolves around the opportunity for President Bartlett to be delivering a speech, which, as we all know, here we are down the road, 60 plus episodes later, is just like that's kind of status quo. That's your ultimate so it's weapon like it's all in West Wing yeah. world is is pull out the great speech and that <laughs> and it wins it wins everything. It can win you the democratic nomination, it can win you the presidency, <laughs> it can win you over the opposition party, it can win you whatever you want in the world if you just speak good enough. Yeah. So beyond Amy Adams's part, there are two like enduring other minor characters through this entire arc that we should remark on the first. The first is the teenager who yes, is a I lo- the teen volunteer. volunteer. I love the teen volunteer. I, I don't even remember his name. It's like Todd or something. Sure, <laughs> sure, something like that. But uh, yeah, I love him. So let's let's unpack their their lostness a little. So originally the motorcade leaves, and um, Donna whips out her cell phone to call the quote unquote trailer car, which I assume is a car that is made for these kind of situations where it can go back and not disrupt the rest of the motorcade, pick up who got left behind, and bring them to the next destination. Apparently today the trailer car was cancelled. Um, I think this episode does a good job of, like, Donna has a cell phone, but it's not an instant solution to every single problem. 
Yeah, I had mentioned that as being a thing. Like, this is just on the cusp of where cell phones were. Where if they had a smartphone and Uber, this episode wouldn't happen. But (laughs) but they have a cell phone and they have some bad logistics going on and it allows the episode to unfold. Yeah. Well, and it's it's fine. It's sort of right on the cusp of when they became ubiquitous. Right. Yeah, and you know it's uh, uh, you know she keeps calling throughout 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 the episode, and then finally midway through, it's like my cell phone battery died. Yeah. It's like yeah, well, what do you expect? <laughs> yeah, so teenage volunteer guy ends up driving them once they get to like a gas station that Amy Adams drops them off on. Yeah, at, but... there's this weird derail where Amy Adams runs out of gas, and then they have this whole big thing about it's not gas, it's diesel, which I don't care about, but it's just like. <laughs> Okay, as a human adult, have you ever run out of gas, Stu? No, I have Me literally neither. never. Literally never in my life. I have had a couple close calls, but I have literally never run out of gas. How is it that they, Amy Adams was driving these people and didn't, like, look at the gas gauge at some point yeah. and realize, like, <laughs> oh, shit, we have, like, 30 miles to go, and this thing is on, like, the second it's, warning it's like light? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So I just think that's that's a, f- a little funny and cliche to me. Like, uh oh, we ran out of gas. Like, really? For Who sure. runs out? Who the fuck runs out of gas? Come on. Yeah. Well, and it, it's I think it's envisioned as a thing. Like, oh, we need an excuse to get them stranded miles right. from the nearest whatever anything. anything. Yeah. So they so they get the teen um, uh, volunteer, volunteer who is not even eighteen, who can't even vote. Uh, Donna brings up that he can't even vote, so he's either sixteen or seventeen because he can't drive. Uh, he drives them around in his Jeep Wrangler, which you mentioned is the coolest car. Holy shit! This is, this is my. I, I just wrote this down while we were, I was like kind of stream of consciousness. This so just like I'm sorry. Like growing up and turning eighteen in two thousand two, like. Sorry, mid '90s Jeep Wranglers, no, clueless. This, it kid, is the, this it teen's is the got a fucking Jeep made. Wrangler all to himself. God damn, he is living yeah. high. And um, so yeah, then they have this funny little encounter with like his girlfriend and her, his girlfriend's friends, and they have a bunch of like dumb teen drama. And like Josh and Toby are just like, "Why are we dealing with fucking teen drama?" <laughs> and and then it's just it's perfectly. This scene is probably my favorite part of this entire arc, where they have the teen drama, where he's like yelling at his girlfriend or whatever, and then they get the call that they aren't going to make the plane because of the time zone yes. issue, yeah. and then Donna is kind of left in the middle as Josh and Toby go off and basically do teen drama in the back. They just melt down in the most glorious <laughs> yeah, way, and Donna has to be like, "Okay, my guys are going to need a minute here to like fucking melt down real hard, and then we're gonna <laughs> then we're gonna gather ourselves and we're gonna figure out something, okay?" Well, and I, it's just like it, it struck me it's brilliant because it's like we're supposed to be like oh gosh look at this inconsequential garbage with the teenager stopping the car and like his girlfriend that he pines for and her friends being like well I don't know you're like a weirdo and then, and then Josh and Toby who are the quote unquote adults in the room are off like beating this bridge with sticks <laughs> yeah they're acting like actual children <laughs> Because, it was really wonderful. Yeah, so it, this episode's really well done as, like, or episodes, I should say. Uh, they're very well done as, like, entertaining television. And the politics of it don't really enter into much until later or until we get out of the, uh, um, you know, 20 hours of America timeline and we go back to D.C. So I, which, well, let's take a quick break and yeah. we'll, uh, we'll talk about some of the stuff that's going back on in D.C. No 
Before we get back to exactly what's going on in the DC portion of these episodes, let's talk about the thing that sort of caps off the 20 Hours in America segment, or I would call it the climax of the 20 Hours in America segment. So now, after the, their various travels, including a teenager taking them through time zones uh, that, that make them miss flights, and uh, getting on a train that goes the wrong way. <laughs> and they actually uh, put a camera on a train, so like, yeah. good for Sorkin. <laughs> Yeah, like they, a lot is shot on location, and that's what makes these episodes really like move um, as a as an entertainment device. Like we're we're so outside of where we normally are. It's a great change of pace. So I really appreciate that actually. Uh, but so the big sort of cap off is they finally get to some bar or whatever. Uh, a lot has happened. There's been this bombing about a, uh, a pipe pipe bombs went off in some school swim meet. Uh, at some point mm-hmm. uh, toward the end of the part two episode, which has sort of now become the big crisis of the day and, and sort of puts everything else quiet. But before that, we get a great moment with, that I alluded to earlier with Donna. Uh, I actually want you to just put the clip in here where Donna tells off Josh and Toby. I can't take it. You started it. I'm not kidding. I have such an impulse to knock your heads together. I can't remember the last time I heard you two talk about anything other than how a campaign was playing in Washington. Kathy needed to take a second job so her dad could be covered by insurance. She tried to tell you how bad things were for family farmers. You told her we already lost Indiana. You made fun of the fair, but you didn't see they have livestock exhibitions and give prizes for the biggest tomato and the best heirloom apple. They're proud of what they grow. Eight months of transportation, the kindness of six strangers, Random conversations with 12 more, and nobody brought up Bartlett versus Richie but you. I'm writing letters on your behalf to the parents of the kids who were killed today. Can I have the table, please? And it's really good where she just keeps, you know, their their whole concern is just, oh, well, Bartlett versus Richie. How can we tie everything back into Bartlett versus Richie? And they don't actually care about the actual on-the-ground people, which is, in theory, what they're supposed to care about as, you know, representatives of the government. Yeah. So I like I really like that. I like that the show and Donna gets to effectively morally call them out and they they kind of actually do sit in their shame for a little while. And so then it leads to this next moment coming up with Toby where he actually does listen to a guy on the ground. Um, and this guy on the ground is talking about how he's touring colleges with his daughter and they were just out here touring Notre Dame. And uh, Toby, in a nice way of of not having to live up to his I work in the White House bet, but alluding to it, says, uh, oh, my boss went to Notre Dame. 
um, <laughs> which I thought was funny. And then this this dude at the bar that Toby is talking to goes on this whole riff about like, man, it's so hard to pay for college for my daughter. I make 55k, and my wife brings in another 25k. So they have a combined income of 80k in 2002, which, according to inflation numbers, is about 115k nowadays. So they're they're doing okay for themselves. Yeah, they're doing and, good. In theory, um, but this guy is like, man, but it's so hard, you know, it's struggling to make ends meet, and, you know, it, it should be hard to put your daughter through college, which, first off, let's just like, pause right there. Fucking why? Why? <laughs> why? <laughs> and this mentality is insane. Like, I sort of get where he's coming from. Like, he wants to take accomplishment in... in he wants to take pride in the accomplishment of like, hey, I I worked and suffered and I, you know, I sacrificed my own, you know, pleasure to give a better life to my child. Like, and that is something that, you know, a parent should be proud of. But he's proud of the material purchase of college tuition. He's not proud that his daughter got into college. He's not proud that... His, his daughter's you know, has the opportunity to better her knowledge and better her life. He's proud of the fact that he can pay for it himself and lift that financial burden off of her. And yep. that's such a fucked up thing to be proud that's, of. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, when other countries can ha- do free higher education and pay for it with tax dollars, like, you're taking pride in the sickest, grossest, most, like, capitalism rot part of america and he's so fucking proud of it and it's just ah it's gross because like i feel bad for him and also i am disgusted by him yeah and i think for and frankly like in a modern context this is a problem that's pervasive in leftist i think organizing tactics Mm. Because there will be a lot of and I think there is I can't remember who was discussing it the other day as um, a function of the the nominal left in this country still being largely middle class. I guess we want to retire the term middle class eventually, but like for the, sure. the purpose of this argument, it is predominantly a middle class, lower wealthy class phenomenon. And mm-hmm. to bridge that gap is and I mean, frankly, it's part of the propaganda exercise that has predominated discourse in this country for 40 years to bridge that gap and really reach out to, I guess, nominal working class people like, fuck this guy. I mean, making $115,000. Right. He's family. almost he's, petty, he's almost like petty bouge almost. But, yeah. he, you know, at the end of the day, he is a worker when you think exactly. Of it. So and I think like, that's, I, I'm not I'm not here to, I'm not here to guillotine this guy. I just I want to reeducate him <laughs> in a nice way. Well, and I, th- I think that's that's the central challenge is that you are operating and pushing back against this just utterly pervasive sense right. of self-flagellation, of, of proud, pra- Protestant pride. work ethic. Like, uh, and taking away pride from someone feels like it's hurtful. So, mm-hmm. like, you don't want to just, like, yank that pride away, but you want to sort of refocus it into something healthy. 
you know, like, be proud of the fact that you raised your daughter well enough to get her to college, you know? Be proud of that part of it, not the fact that you can afford the tuition bill. Yeah. Like, that's the, the tuition bill is the bad part that we can get rid of. And so, okay, so to, to bring this home, and so I don't <laughs> just rant about this guy, he really makes me mad. Yeah. This is like the, uh, the, F is the, the essence of neoliberalism is right here at the end when he says, like, it's good that it's hard, but it should just be just a little easier to pay for college. <laughs> Don't make it free. Don't make any big changes. Just make it a little easier. And this is the big takeaway that Toby comes away with. And this is like their big eureka aha moment for this two-part episode. Okay, we're finally listening to the man on the ground, this man in a bar in Indiana. And we're taking his advice. And his advice is just make college a little bit cheaper. <laughs> so all these trips. Fuck off! <laughs> like fucking, and it comes down to some guy being like, mm, "What Boy, if, if tuition this, if was?" This guy like, had said, "I wish college was free." Maybe they would have pushed for it. So, like, that's why I'm mad at this guy. Like, he <laughs> he let his his imagination limit him to such a to such an extent. Yeah. Well, and that's again, that's part of sort of what just very broadly we push back against is that everybody's trained trained out of a broader imagination like right you, you not, have not narrow... realizing that we're the richest country in the world <laughs> and could easily easily pay for higher education for literally every citizen if we wanted to well, the the statistic this week that was being tossed around was all of the uh covid relief funds relief that went to like i don't know yeah the 12 trillion corporate or bonds yeah. or whatever. it's like you could have just cut every single person alive in this country a check for $45,000 every person March. babies and grandmas included yeah. not, we're not just talking working age people here <laughs> everyone could have had like 46 grand <laughs> cash money just like imagine. imagine that imagine how good the fucking economy would be <laughs> if every person got handed 45 goddamn thousand dollars <laughs> I would buy a fucking boat, like you know, like what whatever it is that you need. And again, the just the concept of breathing room, like even if it just goes to provide for even a time, if you just save, yeah, even a if time you just for stick everyone it all in a savings, a time for everyone to be like, maybe I don't need to spend fourteen hours a day just barely feeding my kids right imagine the collective like psychic relief we would have like the the mental improvement of of mood and well-being that everyone would have if you knew you had forty five thousand sitting away in savings protecting you in case you ever lost your job or or had a bad you know had an accident or something like that imagine that well it's just it's ironic that that breathing room is coming more from a sense of just fucking everybody getting blackpilled because they don't have a job anymore this time around. Right. It's like, well, shit, I don't have to worry about anything because I'm going to fucking starve and get evicted anyway. And now right. we have these giant protests that have been going for three weeks now. Right. And with, yeah, and are only going to grow as more and more no people shit. get laid off and the, uh, the Bernie unemployment extra money stops at the end of July. So... It, Oh boy! <laughs> Just the the limited scope, the myopic approach to well, maybe let's just make tuition thirty grand a year instead of thirty five. What if we just tweak the dials like a little? <laughs> yeah. I really don't want to replace the whole system, but I love tweaking the dials just a little bit. It's so much fun. Look at this nice tactile like feel to the rubber. You know, and it's, if you, oh, it's like the big knob on a sound system, you know, like it just feels good to move that dial, but only a little, only a little bit though. Yeah. So 
This guy's uh, the fucking worst. And the sad thing is, it's not his fault. It's You could just see the brainwashing of the American culture manifest itself through this guy, or or through Serkin's writing, in, yeah. in essence, oh, for sure. since this man is, you know, a fictional construct. But it's all the same thing, because it's such an uh, inherently American idea of, like, no, it's, it's good that I suffer, actually. I just want the suffering to just be a little bit less. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and Not so, make the suffering go away, though. I, I think we're all clear we need the suffering. <laughs> to, to bring it back to, like, the Bartlett stuff, the he is also, throughout this episode, he's, you know, he's on the campaign trail, ends up going back to D.C., but the thing that sort of starts to prevail is he's concerned about a substantial drop in the stock market. Right. Um, <laughs> which, man, which, so cute. Ooh, After, it's like, adorable. these last few weeks, it seems adorable, like, the drop he's compared, he's concerned about. So, and that is, like, that sort of is something that reorients us to think about, I think, the, you know, it's the administration now. When, when we're back in D.C., we're talking about right. big national issues that are happening. And yeah, so, the campaign is pretty much forgotten once we're actually back in D.C. Yes, absolutely. Um He's worried about the stock market. And honestly, like the other big thing that's going on is the fallout from them, you know, extrajudicially murdering a man. Yeah. What? 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 A squeeze gets, a squeeze gets. Um, yeah. So now they're all worried about uh, Kumar because uh, Kumar keeps trying to dig up like uh, more investigations into exactly what happened you know he goes to Fitz and Fitz is like no no man it's cool we we scattered the plane in like 27 different places in the Bermuda Triangle they have a kind of little riff about like is the Bermuda Triangle actually real or is that just something we make up to assassinate people I think I remembered I commented on that like last episode or two episodes ago when they were talking about it it's like I had forgotten that they literally say well it's the Bermuda Triangle this shit happens all the <laughs> um, so and then here's the great thing that ends up uh, at de- ending the Kumar plotline for these episodes it's going to continue forward though mm-hmm. they didn't realize <laughs> the real problem isn't that Kumar figures out that America did it the real problem is that what if Kumar says Israel did yeah. it <laughs> oh fuck <laughs> which is just it's so good and I think I think it's why we get um, and Emma actually Emma remarked on this that this is the one of the only times that we see Nancy McNally and Fitz in the room at the same time. Correct. Because Nancy basically replaces Fitz at some point down the line. Well, and also it's also because at this point her purview sort of collides with his because right. it is rapidly becoming a question of like national security. Yeah, and we are we are teetering on the brink of destroying our hegemony if they go after Israel on this. Like, it's literally right. like a, a potential World War Three scenario. Yeah, like, she's, World War Three is going to spark in the Middle East because you didn't think about the consequences, not of you getting caught, but of the people you killed blaming someone else <laughs> and sparking a whole fucking shitstorm. Or, and frankly, like, being better than you are at this game. Yeah, which should have like, been obvious this, at the outset. Like, Yeah, if this is, on. like, a tro- trolling move by Kumar to basically, like, provoke the U.S., god damn, it's perfectly executed. <laughs> yeah, it's really extremely good. This is, this is some, like, Bin Laden 1 energy right here. <laughs> like, you know, uh, Sharif 1. Sharif actually got what he wanted. Yeah, and, um, I mean, they sort of... 
they, they go through a couple things about it and they're really concerned and blah, blah, blah. But then it's like sharp, sharp turn off when all of a sudden there's another bombing thing that happens and these pipe right. bombs go Domestic. off the swim beat. So, and it's like, it is paced, and this is in the second episode of the two, by the way. Yes. It is paced such that it like, and I, I mentioned that it reminds me of a like a 24-hour news cycle being missed or being repeated or whatever, but yeah. it's like, it's sort of just... We were like for a while. We're just it's it's Kumar, 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 and then this thing happens, and it's like, all right, now we're talking about this bombing in like right. the swimming, and meet. Kumar shall never be mentioned again. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like until the the okay. next episode where it comes up. Yeah, so yeah, like forty four people die in this pipe bombing in uh, at a pool meet in some high school somewhere in yeah. the Midwest, and. Uh, uh, Sam writes Bartlett a big speech about like, oh, you know, these brave boys ran into the fire to try to save other people. And isn't that the best part of America that we have people like that who will run into the fire? And it's very, I don't know. It felt so like I felt nothing during it. <laughs> like normally I feel something when they're trying to make these big emotional speeches, but this one just feels empty. <laughs> and it's like, just sort of this self-aggrandizing rhetoric about like, wow, isn't this why America is great? I, I think that's. Thing. I think that was what was coloring my observation of like it, it grabbing your attention back because it's just it seems extremely the way they play it up. It's like this happens abruptly, which okay, fine, like you know, stochastic terrorism. Nobody sure. knows about that. It's going to happen, but then it's just like oh, all of a sudden it's all about this. And Bartlett's giving a big speech at a black tie dinner about right. this, and it's like oh. Yeah. You. This is quite selfish <laughs> yeah. of you. It feels like he should be addressing the nation and not like a black tie dinner, you know? And he's like also... That, the speech should be going out to America, one would think. And I guess the implication is because you're watching it on a TV screen right now, dear viewer, you, it is going out to America, effectively. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, in the fiction of the world, he's just talking to, like you said, a black tie event. I don't think there are any cameras there. I, I honestly don't know, but it um, it just, and the tone is such that it's like, America is great because of all these things. And it's like, we were just talking about how America is kind of shitty because we had to break all these laws to kill this guy. Right, So, but... So we're, we're just going like, to compartmentalize that off here and talk about how America is great because we have people who run into the fire. Like, right. Okay. Like, you know, look, I appreciate the look for the helper speech as much as anyone else, but it feels <laughs> cold mm-hmm. and, and, you know, empty, particularly when A, it's a fictional event, and B, just like, like we both said, the framing of it is very weirdly done um, in this particular episode. Yeah. Uh, let's take let's take another quick break, and then I want to talk about some of the lighter uh, stuff that happens. Absolutely. And we're back. And the other 
subplot that I really wanted to talk about is Bartlett's uh, quest to replace Mrs. Landingham continues. And so now we've already had the uh, stoned interview with Lily Tomlin that she completely flopped. Uh, but as we saw in that episode, Charlie said, oh no, we're, we're doing this again until you get it right. Um, but before then, uh, Bartlett actually interviews two other candidates on Air Force One on his way back from the Indiana trip. Um, and the first, the first candidate, he keeps trying to impress with Air Force One. Like, aren't you impressed by the plane? And she's like, not really. It's okay. <laughs> and, it's just, and she's like, it's a plane. I'm, I'm not easily impressed. Uh, and it's really good because it kind of throws Bartlett off. And he keeps trying to, like, circle back to, like, but we have this great plane! <laughs> um, so, th I find that very funny. Like, it's really well-done comedy here. They, they bring in another uh, secretary woman, and both of these actresses, I feel like, do a great job, or the writing is done really well, where they're both portrayed extremely competent, and you could tell that they would both be a good technical replacement for Mrs. Lanningham, yep. but there's such a personality divide between them and Bartlett where like they don't get Bartlett's jokes or you know they're just they're not you wouldn't see them palling around with Charlie like Mrs. Landingham did like you the viewer realize oh these would be bad fits and so therefore when Lily Tomlin comes back into the picture you're like ah oh, Lily Tomlin isn't she so great yeah. everyone <laughs> this is gonna go way and better yeah, it's like, oh, please, Bartlett, pick her, pick her. And so they sit down, they have an interview again, uh, which is mostly talking about the previous interview. And she's like, don't worry, I have a perfectly good explanation for why I was so shitty in that interview. <laughs> oh, yeah? What was it? I was I high. I was high. <laughs> oh. <laughs> which, God, if I could get away with that interview answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be interviewing everywhere. I'd get, I'd get a lot more jobs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so then they um in what is a i i don't know if this is well i would call it well done or sort of like bluntly done but there's this moment where someone uh, a staffer interrupts their interview to to spout out a few facts about what the dollar is doing like against the yen and against the euro mm -hmm. and then the, their interview goes, goes on and concludes and lily tomlin makes to leave the white house and Bartlett's like, have some agents stop her at the gate. And they do, and Bartlett literally runs, like, jogs through the the West Wing, and we get, like, a shot of it. It's kind of weird, but whatever. And uh, he catches up with Lily Tomlin, and he's like, uh, Mrs. Fitterer, what what did that aide say about the dollar? And she, and she in the secret test of character, manages to remember the, the details about what the uh, aide said about the dollar. And then Bartlett does his, like, significant point as to say like we got her <laughs> this this is the one here baby this is the one yeah i i don't i don't know if that's well done or if it feels uh, like i said it feels very kind of like secret test so, of character like the real interview wasn't the interview it was did you pay attention to what this aide said well, so i also want to i'm i'm very confused and holy shit is the episode confusing about because the actual test that he sort of like he he his brain clicks over to her on is that we remember from the past that Debbie hired Charlie and, and somehow got fired and then got for fired that. for that. So right. Debbie goes in and tells the story to the president again and <laughs> which I think is just Lily Tomlin carrying this scene because she yes. says something like and I'll put the clip in here. I used to call him David Dweck, wanna drink a wah wah 
till I realized it wasn't really funny. And then she, like, it's just like, yes, I just, it's so funny to hear her say, She's so like, good. I, I, I said this joke and then I realized it wasn't actually funny. It's like, okay. So, what, she, she's so good. And what, what turns out is that this congressman wanted to garner additional donations from something because one of his big donors is a CFO of whatever, and his son needed a job. So he was going to get them the Charlie job. Going to get them and the Charlie job. And Debbie had the integrity to say, fuck off. To fuck it, to fuck it up and go like, no, I'm not going to give it to the well-connected son. And, I'm going to give it to this kid who probably needs it. And the guy who this guy's crony was or whatever, the director of the Office of Personnel, fired her because she refused yes. to. And holy shit, we've, all, we've, we've just talked about three people we've never met. And this congressman who I think maybe made one other appearance ever, and for some reason is at the fucking White House Yeah, well, when yeah, they come well, out of the interview. I don't <laughs> get it. It's just like, okay, so you could have just said, like, I refuse to do nepotism. Like, I didn't do a nepotism. Right, right. But she, she kind of, like, cannily holds that away from Bartlett yes. the whole time and makes him, like deduct it out of mm-hmm. her because she she doesn't want to give up the guy she doesn't want to basically say like yeah he tried to do a nepotism and it was super fucked up and uh he, he's a real bad guy and she doesn't want to she doesn't want to say that because of like decorum essentially yeah it's just and it's so confusing in the moment because which is weird because lily tomlin is played as supposed to be like a straight shooter you know who like who tells you the truth you know, and doesn't and doesn't fuss around, but also she's loyal. I guess is what we're yeah. trying to say. Like she didn't, because Bartlett keeps coming back to she didn't give you up. She didn't give you up. And you know, so she's loyal. Okay, she but, doesn't snitch. And but and but then it's like, but she did by talking about it at all. Like right, I don't. Well, it, it's, Bartlett kept trying to needle it out of it, her. It's, essentially, it's fucking nuts. And I it's mean, stupid. Re- regardless. It's fine. Like, Lily Tomlin is now going to be a recurring character, which rules. Um, yes. So, yeah, so she's the new Mrs. Landingham yeah. from now on. Hooray. <laughs> which is great. Um, yeah, I think it works better if it's... Because, like, he brings up with the other secretaries that he needs to be remembering facts and figures and dates and stuff uh, because of short-term memory loss, which then... I think Leo or, or Toby or someone brings it up at the end of the episode, like, oh, he's worried about possible MS implications. Yes. So... I like that. I like it better being that the real secret test of character for her is remembering what the dollar did against the yen or whatever, mm-hmm. and not that you were loyal to the shit bag <laughs> yeah. and, and covered for him. Yeah, <laughs> I it I would be the opposite way for me. Don't get me wrong, but like, uh, all right, you do you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's like the that's the thing that comes down, and then Charlie goes on sort of to they're all at this black tie event. Later, and we get another little glimpse of, like, the fallout of the... And this has actually been throughout the thing. The fallout of um, Simon's, Simon's death. death. Mm-hmm. They're trying to find a new mentor for his little brother. Like, I, I say capital yeah. little, capital brother, because they're the Big Brothers program. Right. It, we saw Anthony show up in the one before Simon yeah. goes to New York. And like I said, they have their sort of, like, I, and I'm going to be on my boat in New York to live forever <laughs> moment. <laughs> um so, yeah, so now uh, Anthony's really upset, obviously. You know, Simon died. Sure. He, they were very close. Um, he's quite moody. Uh, CJ is going around trying to find him another big brother. She asked Charlie first, then she asked Sam. 
she comes back to Anthony is like, hey, you know, I'm sorry I couldn't find you anyone today. I'm going to ask some more people tomorrow. Anthony kind of pops off and mouths off at her because he's incredibly moody. Um, Charlie comes in as Anthony is popping off and pulls like a whole macho man, like pin him against the wall. You know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, you know, on Saturdays I go get breakfast. Then I come here. Then I play basketball. You're going to come be a little brother with me on Saturdays or I'm going to fuck you up. Yeah. Basically. (laughs) It's very, very strange. Yeah, <laughs> but and it's like okay, then and it it makes sense again, sort of as like as like a dramatic device because everybody's like ooh tense because Charlie's acting like out of right. sorts. Because Charlie never acts angry. Yeah, you know, it speaks unless shit to is completely is serious. Yeah, um, but it's just it's like the the storyline is petering out. Like yeah. Simon's dead, and, Sorry. and I don't think we'll hear anything about Anthony and and Charlie ever again. Maybe they come back one one episode. Maybe Anthony shows up actually being like little brothered by Charlie at some point, but I don't think so. Uh, and then the last thing I wanted to talk about is Sam's plotline. Yes. So Sam Sam is committing the cardinal mistake of West Wing and is taking Day vacation, vacation time. time. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, we know means it will be interrupted. Ah, shit. And so he... <laughs> it's so funny how that works. And so he's he's literally sleeping at home. And then at, at first, Josh ca- calls him because they're lost and uh, screams into the answering machine, which gets a nice comedy pratfall moment out of Rob Lowe mm-hmm. uh, as he falls off the bed. Um and then basically Josh is like, okay, since I'm not in Washington, D.C. because of all this 20 hours in America bullshit I'm going through, you need to go into the West Wing and actually staff the president for the day. Meaning you hang out with him throughout all his various meetings and like midway through the day when he's like, hey, why did we have that economic meeting and why does it relate to this agriculture meeting? You need to be able to there to answer that question for him. And so Sam has this plot line throughout the day of like jumping into something he's never done before. And he, uh, he ends up writing that, that speech at the end about the heroes that go in back into the fire. And then this is, and allow me to get meta for a moment here, but then Sorkin sort of basically rewards Sam and himself because Sam is of course his self insert as the uh, uh, young, yeah. idealistic, handsome writer. Uh, so after Sam makes that speech and staffs the president for the day, Mallory shows up, uh, looking like a million bucks. Um, yeah. And, and she has broken up with her hockey boyfriend and she's, <laughs> and she's here to tell Sam that he did such a good job writing that she is so like starstruck and swooned and won over by the beautiful, beautiful words he's written. And it just feels like Sorkin jerking himself off just, so hard. I, and now... Let, let's be clear, like, Mallory's a total snack, but yes, it's so incongruous. So, Sorkin is particularly infamous for using, like, pretty women as rewards, and in fact Ooh. was called out for such in uh, The Social Network, oh. where all the female characters are basically just rewards for our mains, where, like, they invent Facebook and then they hook up with two hot Asian girls, because, you know, they need a reward. <laughs> Yeah. And this feels this feels like a version of that where Mallory is now here as Sam's reward for doing good. Well, and it's it's also like the and we mentioned this last episode where it's like it's the Sam getting back on the horse phenomenon. Definitely. Which okay, Definitely. like sure for a serialization. And na- now he's now he's firmly back in yeah, there. So he's firmly know? like back in the saddle again. Like which okay, yeah. cool. Like that's that's fine, but it's just super gross. It's like when was the last time we saw Mallory like 
literally God, God three only seasons knows. ago. Yeah, I, like God only knows. I think the last the last time it was at the opera when they were discussing Hockey Boyfriend. Yeah, um, <laughs> and that was back in like the Icelandic opera episode, which was like early season three. Jeez. I think. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So yeah, like to pull Mallory out of nowhere and only to do it because of course Sam likes Mallory and so therefore this is very clearly like a reward for Sam and it just it feels very gross in that Sorkin kind of way where he's just sort of casually sexist with stuff like this. Yeah, but they all all the women have killer dresses throughout this entire show. Every time yeah. they're at these events it's just like damn. W- w- wardrobe uh person doing a great no job. No shit. <laughs> give that Good. give that person a bonus. Good job, good job, whoever was in charge of wardrobe on uh, on West Wing. You were you were pulling your weight. Hell yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that about covers everything I wanted to talk about in these particular episodes. I'm pretty good too. Okay, let's take a quick final break and then we'll wrap up. And welcome back. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, this was a real fun one for us to record. The, like I said, as episodes go, as entertaining episodes of television, I would rank these up there because we get out of DC and we get to see America. Yeah. You know? If if I was being honest, and like if it wasn't so out of step with every other episode to this date, I would be like, look, if you want to watch one episode. Of the West Wing, or I guess two episodes of the West Wing. Like this is a mm-hmm. good one because you got snappy writing. You see all the characters. Like it's mm-hmm. it's just detached enough from the serious shitty politics that you sort of like. Oh, it's just a show about these characters. Pretty much, yeah. It feels it feels more sort of office dramedy or yes. office sitcom than like politics show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it which is good and a, an entertaining change of pace. This would be a weird one to jump into with no background. I feel like you should ha- probably have some intro of the characters, but I do agree that these w- these would be interesting episodes Absolutely. to onboard to onboard someone onto the show. Uh, but anyway, as I said, thanks for listening. Uh, as always, we appreciate any comments or posts you drop in the thread. Um, or if you found us a different way, you can shoot the show an email with any of your thoughts at theworstwing69 at gmail.com. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. And uh, we will be back next time um, with the next episode that I'm not even going to bother looking up, but it will be another episode <laughs> of The West Wing, and we will be more than happy to dissect it and break it down here on The Worst Wing. So, again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Catch you soon. Bye. all the money you asked for, but don't ask me to come on along. So love me, love me, love me.